We're in a series called Game On, and the idea is that, in fact, life is not necessarily a game, but it's being played uh, as we speak, and whether you like it or not, you're a player. And, um, and you might feel uh, frantic, you might feel overwhelmed. I don't know if anyone watched the Alabama um, uh, Texas A&M game yesterday, which I like football, so I, I watched it while I was praying, of course, but... Um, <laughs> But uh, they got this guy, uh, Johnny Manziel, and he's been in all, all throughout the news. They call him Johnny Football. Anyway, so, so there was this time he was about ready to get sacked, and like guys are clinging on him, and he's ducking, and he's going all this kind of stuff, and running all around crazy. And I, I just thought to myself, that's like some of the people at church. <laughs> Like, I know they feel that way. You've let me know you feel that way. Certain times in my life, I've felt that way. Like, man, if I, I'm just like one trip up of just having life pile on top of me. And so that's what we've been talking about, is this idea that we're a player in this game, this game of life, whether we like it or not. And so if we're a player, and if we can't get away from it, and if circumstances happen, don't we want to be good players? And so what we've talked about in the beginning was the idea that we... The term Christian is fine, except for the fact that we can hide behind that, and you can kind of make Christian anything you want it to mean. But the word disciple, that kind of cuts through a lot of that stuff and kind of really gets to the heart of the matter. And so we talked about the idea that we're really, if we're following Christ, we're really disciples, not necessarily Christians. And then we talked about, well, if we're going to be disciples... And we weren't suggesting that you now use that as your term. If people say, you know, are you a Christian? No, I'm a disciple. You know, they'll just be like, oh, brother. But anyway, uh, we're not saying you, you change and, and use that terminology. But, but in your mind, if you could think, you know, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. What, what would Jesus do? What would you do, master, in this situation? And so what we decided to do from there was talk about what do effective disciples do? Like, what do they look like? How do they manage their day? What, what's important to an effective disciple? And last week we talked about the idea of worship. And we talked about the fact that worship, you know, as a, a Christian community, oftentimes we narrow it down to who's leading worship. You know, we'd say, well, Luke, you know, he did a great job leading worship. And, and we've argued in, the, in the, the church's history over what is effective worship. Should you have an organ? Should you have a drum set? Should you be in pews? Should you be in chairs? All that kind of stuff. And what we talked about last week that God says, oftentimes, I hate your worship. <laughs> I don't care what you're doing. It, uh, your festivals, your feasts, all that kind of stuff. Because what we talked about last week the question for worship is, do you have any idols? Because <laughs> if you do, God is more concerned about removing idols than how you worship or how we worship. And so that's what we talked about last week was, do you have any idols? How do we get rid of those idols so that when, and, in, and we talked about the fact that when we do that, it almost doesn't matter what worship looks like, right? Because we're worshiping the true and living God. This morning, we're going to talk about another habit or another foundation of an effective disciple and that is how they read and apply the word of God and so uh, like we did last week we've got some guest testimonials uh, Rick and Kathy Sorensen who've been coming to this church uh, I think like right when I got here yeah so eight eight years ago or seven years ago man I'm getting old uh, 
So this is Rick and Kathy. Maybe many of you don't know, but Rick actually was a pastor here uh, in the 80s. Yeah, yeah in, in, the, in the early 80s. And then uh, he became a Christian. And now he's, uh, <laughs> at, now, now he's attending church here. No. But, uh, so the question I asked last, um, uh, last service, explain to me how, what role does the Bible play in your lives, both individually and as a couple? saturated into my little being as a baby and living in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor and uh, actually the heritage in my life with the Bible and God in the church goes way back my great-grandfather and free Methodist, all free Methodist and uh, that's why we're here today. But uh, the Bible has played a significant role in my life. I, the earliest recollection of loving God's Word is watching my mom prepare a young married Sunday school class. And I would see her just pour her heart into God's word in order to teach it to her young married class. And that class would just be full. I would say it was probably the size of one half of the, of the sanctuary here. And it was full of young marrieds. Cool. And, um, and I would see her um, when she would, I would be in her class because often, because I didn't want to be in my own Sunday school class because I was afraid they'd ask me to read out loud. And I didn't have to do that. So I would pretend to not feel well. And so I would sit with my mom in, in the front row and watch her teach the Bible. But, um, but because of her love and my dad's preaching in the Bible and all of that. But um, that's, that's why I love the Bible. Awesome. I still do. Awesome. I was 18 years old before I came to know Christ. And up to that point, I uh, always went to church. Believed in God, believed in Jesus, and even believed in the Bible, but I never had that personal connection. And then when I was a senior in high school, happened to be at her dad's uh, Free Methodist Church in Indianapolis, uh, got plugged in and found the Lord there. And a year later, I was drafted and found myself in the military And uh, as a young believer, and I carried around this little New Testament Bible. It was a living translation. Instead of carrying a wallet, I used that and put my ID in there and what little money I did have. And then whenever I had a chance, I would open it up and start reading. And I knew not a whole lot about the Bible at that point in time. And I remember if I'd open up to a book like Philippians and read all the introduction and Church of Philippi and the slave to Jesus and all that stuff just went over my head. I kind of skipped through that pretty quickly. And then I would go down to parts that started speaking to me. Hmm. And that's how I began my journey with uh, getting into the Word. It's like a lot I didn't understand, but I focused on what I did understand and focused on those verses that I felt like the Lord was trying to get my attention on. And then as the years progressed, I found myself studying more, but for the wrong reasons. And uh, there's a big difference between knowing a lot about God and his word and knowing him personally. And, uh, and then times and stretches in my life where um, I didn't have time to get into his word on a daily basis. And it took a long time for the Lord to start really convicting me that if I've got time to watch TV and read the newspaper and all these other things, that it's like he wanted to be first. And so I picked up a, a devotional book and started using that, written by uh, uh, actually the former president of Asbury College, and it's A Day with the Master. And I thought, well, that's a good way to kind of be exposed through his insight and perspective on life. But then the Lord took me another step and realized, well, this is a man. You know, no matter how godly of a man he is, I still have more in my word that I want uh, you to focus on. So I made a vow to the Lord that I'm going to begin each day in his word. 
and then second came the devotion, and third the newspaper and online, you know, stuff like that. But it's like, it took me a long time uh, to kind of figure out that he had so much more to teach me with regards to his word. And um, it's kind of like a map, you know, a map designed to help us get from point A to point B. My wife's not good with directions, so she gets, uh, she gets lost real easy. And uh, <clears throat> so she discovered, uh, you know, all she has to do is say, Siri, take me home. And so she clicks that. Actually, she learned that from Becky Mills. Yeah, I love you, <laughs> Becky. So I no longer have to worry. And she's always texting me, how do I get home? I'm here and whatnot. So I was Siri for the longest time. <laughs> and uh, the other night, she was um, back to school at night, and she was babysitting for our new grandson. And she had to take the back way from Mission Viejo here. And she doesn't like driving at night, and she's not good with directions. And so I thought, I don't need to worry about her. I was in a meeting, and so she'll just use Siri. She gets home, she's all stressed out, panicky, and she prayed and sang songs to the Lord. And he got her home, and I said, why didn't you use Siri? And she said, I forgot. And it's like, really? And um, it's like, what a powerful resource to help you get from, to get home. And I was thinking about since the first service, it's like, well, wouldn't it be cool if we could put an app on here and just say, uh, GW, God's word, take me home. And uh, as you open up the scripture, you know, there's so much the Lord wants to take us home. I mean, we're on a journey, and this is the way to get there. I think I would say, uh, GW, I want to take the scenic route and uh, the easy road. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the longer road. I do not understand easy road. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. But I think the comforting thing is that no matter where our journey takes us, is God's word has truth in there to help us deal with what's before us. And Justin, I don't know if he's here, but uh, his testimony last week when he opened up the word uh, mm. and, you know, with, the, with his struggle with his hearing issue. And I just thought, here's a young person that's looking to God's word and the truth that was revealed to him is not necessarily what he's looking for. And yet he met the Lord there and experienced God's peace, even in the midst of the, the struggle in the valley. And I just thought, man, you know, I, I, I was so blessed by that. And I thought, man, if I could have been where he is mm-hmm. uh, when I was back then, yeah. you know, just how much heartache and detours and, and whatnot. So mm-hmm. even though I can make fun of my wife about not using Siri, there's been times in my own journey when I've not used this. Yeah. And, uh, but the great thing is that God always has a way of bringing us back to him. And uh, he opens our eyes to his love and his grace and his truth, that it's in his word. And as I said in the first service, sometimes truth is uh, what you want to hear. And other times it's kind of painful, you know, because the truth is always ultimately designed to set us free. And sometimes when I'm reading God's word, there's things that uh, my eyes are open to what the Lord sees about me and my life, the flaws, the imperfections. And yet in his love... He wants to redeem, he wants to restore, he wants to reconcile. And I mean, that's the good news. It's like there's always a positive outcome. Awesome, awesome. Let me pray for you guys. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this couple and the example that they are of uh, a couple that isn't perfect, um, but loves each other and um, places their marriage, their home uh, as best they can, their jobs under the authority of your word. And so I just pray blessing upon them. Lord, I thank you that um, uh, that this is just the beginning of even more ministry and more uh, discovery of who you are and what you're doing. And I just pray a blessing upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we give them a hand?
So you have this couple that are, I don't know, in their early 40s or whatever. Um, and uh, they wake up in the morning and they open up a book that's really old. Really old. And they read it and they look at it and then something pops out and they apply it to their life. That is weird. Isn't that weird? I mean, think about that really in just to today's society. Isn't it weird? That you'd, I mean, nowadays, new is much better than old. The Bible... It's just a bizarre book. It's actually not a book at all. And for those who've been Christians for a long, long time, you'll look at me and go, wow, man, is this all you had on Sunday morning? But I think it's good for all of us to be reminded again. The Bible is not a book that came down from a meteor and the meteor opened up and there was this golden thing or whatever and we opened it up and God had this thing. There was a process there was almost a creation process of how what we call the Bible came into existence. And it took a lot of time, and it took a lot of people, and it took a lot of communities like ours searching and discovering and applying and testing and trying and and, and encouraging. The Bible, the first part of the Bible, Genesis, was the, the, the pen, what we call the Pentateuch, which is five, just the first five books of the Bible was written, get this, in 1400 B.C. Now, I don't know about you, but anything that ends in B.C., I just think of caveman. I don't know, I don't, you know what I mean? It's like when I think B.C., I just think of, you know, dragging the woman behind you with the club. I mean, some of you guys, you, you know, you get that now, but, uh, you know, it's like... <laughs> Uh, you know, just like, 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 just like kind of stupid almost like, you know, grog like food, you know, that kind of that whole type of thing. The Bible, Genesis was written 1400 BC was the first five books were written in that time. Now, if you think about that, the last book of the Bible in, in, in the New Testament that was written in about 60 AD. So it took essentially to complete the Bible about 1,460, 1460 years. Now here's the thing. You hold in your hand, and I hold in my hand, a collection of texts that are 1,400 years old. Now for some of us, we think, well, yeah, but isn't there a latest and greatest? I mean, isn't there, well, you know, now that we've learned, you know, you know, Moses was a great guy and everything, but he didn't have Siri, you know, so how, how, how smart could he be? Hey, I have Siri. I'm not that smart, okay? And, and so, so this Bible, it's 66 books in the Bible. And not only that, not only were they written over a long period of time, there were 40 different authors that writ, wrote biblical texts. And the process to what we call canonize them, get them together and say, this is what we call the Bible took people, took communities, took councils. There was this council of Nicaea and they, they got together and they argued and they went over these other different books. I, you know, sometimes you'll turn on the Discovery Channel or History Channel and there'll be something called like the lost books of the Bible. And, and you'll look and you'll be like, oh 
oh boy, what, what, if the, what if this Bible isn't the real Bible and all this kind of stuff? And you realize, man, that book of Thomas, all that kind of, that, this is like hundreds of years old we knew about those books. I mean, they were argued about at these councils. And the community of God through the moving of the Holy Spirit and through how God for some reason uses people in 1,450 years and in people living in communities, applying this to their life and, 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 and testing it and sometimes just memorizing it so they could transfer it verbally. We have our Bible, our collection of texts. Now, real quick, the Bible is divided up into two sections, okay? And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm back in, you know, you know little day school again or whatever. What, what do you call that? Sunday school, yeah. That's a, wow. I wonder who runs the Sunday school around here. Uh, oops, my wife. Okay. Anyway, uh, and, and so, you know, it, there's two, t- it's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Testament just means covenant. This is super important when you read your Bible. There's the Old Covenant. This is God, the way God dealt with people, his people, the covenants, the promises, the agreements that he had. And so the first covenant came with Noah. And he said, remember that flood thing that you just got through? Okay, we're not going to do that ever again. That was, the, that was one of the covenants. Then he talked to Abraham. And he said, you know what? Everyone's going to know your name throughout all history. Now, again, I won't spend too much time on it, but isn't that incredible? I said the name Abraham, probably almost everyone in this room has heard of Abraham. That covenant actually came true in the Old Testament. You're like, it blows your mind. 1400 B.C. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, we're still talking about Abraham. Abrahamic covenant. He made a covenant with David that through him the Messiah would come. So that's the Old Testament. Now, the, the last Part of the Old Testament, the kind of historical text, the, the last one is Nehemiah. That if you're going historically, chronologically, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is, talks about, uh, so you see the movie 300? Right after 300, nothing. 480 was about when 300, you know, it's not a real movie. They didn't really look that ripped, by the way. I know. I'm a scholar. Okay. Anyway, and it makes me feel better. Um, okay. So, so about that time, 400 years, nothing. All this time, God is moving. God's working in his people. All these things. You read about text. You read about the prophets. What, the cool thing about the prophets is you've got all this historical text of the Old Testament. And the prophets are kind of like a commentary. They're almost like... Um, uh, talk radio of what's happening at the time, how God feels about it, the, the opinion about what's happening. And God put all that in there about, you know, this frustrates me and this is awesome and this is what I want for you. All these things are in this old covenant and then nothing quiet for 400 years. Nothing. No prophets, nobody's writing anything, nothing. And during that time, if you're a student of history, um, that's when uh, Alexander the Great came, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, uh, Romulus and Remus, if you're into all, you know, just kind of, that's all during that time. But nothing in the Bible, nothing really in Israel, other than what appears to be, for them, God not keeping his promise. All these things that they read about a land and a people and all these types of things, they're, they're under rule essentially for 400 years. 
And then, all of a sudden, an angel appears to a teenage girl and says, getting the band back together. (laughs) The new covenant. The new testament. And this messenger comes. As a matter of fact, it's so fascinating. One of the last prophecies out of the Old Testament uh, is out of Malachi. And just to show you this process of this, of this journey with the Bible, David uh, wrote about what he loved about the Bible. Here's what David wrote. Now, I want you to get this because it's really important. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Now, David just represents what's been happening in God's people for hundreds of years. For David, he only had seven of the books. And two of them are really boring. And yet he says, I love it. I meditate on it. I love it. Something happens in the word of God as it's meditated on, as it's applied. David, for him it was an old book. His texts were 400 years old for him. Did you know that? They weren't just written. It wasn't just hot off the presses. It'd been around for 400 years. So you get to Malachi and watch this prophecy. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord God Almighty. This prophecy happened and then 400 years of And then an angel shows up to Mary. It says it's happening now. John the Baptist came. He was the messenger that Malachi is talking about. And when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And we started the new covenant, the New Testament. And in the New Testament of your Bible, it has four gospels, four different accounts of what happened with Jesus. Four different perspectives. All work together. There are some conflicts. And so we have to work that out as a people, as a community, just like they've had to from the very 1400 BC on. It takes a community to work through those things. And then, the, then a guy named Paul comes out of that, out of the book of Acts, which is, spans 60 years, no, I'm sorry, 30 years of the book of Acts. It spans 30 years. A guy named Paul comes out. And then we have 21 letters in there. And then at the end, we have a really confusing book of prophecy called Revelation. And you know what happens in Revelation? It says, Jesus is coming. And then, so far, 2,000 years. And you think, man, This Bible, this ancient text that people, communities have been reading and memorizing and and applying to them to to, to get together in in small groups. I mean, we talk about small groups here. Small groups is not a new concept. This has been happening for all of history. People getting together, reading the Bible and going, what do you think it means? Well, what is it? What what does it mean to to say, I'm going to love my enemy? I'm going to pray for those who persecute me. What, is it, what does it mean to take care of the poor? What does it mean to, to do justice, to have scales that are accurate, to do business right? What, what does it mean to be a community of God? If you think about it, from now all the way back to when Genesis was written, 3,400 years, the book you have in your hand has been around. Now that is a phenomenal idea that we get to study the same things David studied. 
we get to look at and apply and go before our Heavenly Father the same things that some of these church fathers got to do. Now, the problem is, is that it's old. And so oftentimes it's confusing. And so we get to the confusing part and we think, I don't know. I'd much rather, you know, can't you kind of dumb it down for me a little bit? And that's why you come to church. Is that hopefully there'll be a guy standing up here dumbing it down for us all, kind of giving us some insight, doing the heavy lifting, if you will. I understand that. But here's the thing. God wants you to read your Bible. And he wants you to do it every day. Other things about the Bible that's weird. There's about a bunch of miracles in there. And we're kind of into what we call modernity now. It's modern now. We, we can kind of say, well, God healed your leg, but that cast didn't hurt at all either. You know, we kind of get into that. Like, what, what, what does it mean for miracles? Um, it's long, you know. If you think you're going to read it from, from beginning to end, there's places in there that are hard to understand. Israel comes into a city and wipes everybody out and kills everybody. Oof. You know, the church has been struggling with that for hundreds of years. We are connected to a group of people who've been reading this for hundreds of years. Listen to what this guy, William Willimon, says about the scriptures. I just want you to see that the Bible's okay with all of its difficulties. It says this, Scripture delights in a surplus of meaning. It revels in eluding our interpretive grasp. Even after we've applied our very best and most reliable methods of interpretation, there's still more to be said about a given text, still more to be spoken, still something left over to be revealed to us upon later reading. Have you ever found that yourself? You read a verse a whole bunch of times. We're going to go over two verses that I'll bet if you've been a Christian longer than five years, you've heard them 64,282 times. But still, there's stuff in there. Still, there's... Why is that? Why is it that you can go listen to a a speaker, a pastor, a scholar, and they can give you insight into the Bible, and you're like, wow, man, that that is just crazy. How did they come up with that? Man, they're real smart. And then you read it yourself, and you come up with your own thing. That all works together. He goes on. He says, the scripture, the scripture engenders interpretive humility. This is fancy. These writers, some of these writers get so fancy. Basically, it means, hey, go to the word with some respect. I come with some humility to go, man, God, what could you possibly be saying? I'm going to attach myself to the hundreds of years of people who've done the same throughout history. Is essentially what that means, particularly among modern people who enjoy grasping and comprehending everything, right? You can identify with that. I can. I got Discovery Channel, right? So I think I know everything. Indeed, the very elusiveness of some scripture is itself an encouragement, a catalyst to human imagination, teasing us toward itself, beckoning us to use our God-given abilities to decipher and to understand. So here's the thing. We have the greatest opportunity that history has ever had ever to read our Bibles. First of all, they're very easily accessible. Until 500 years ago, there wasn't even a printing press. 
Remember, I said it's been going on for 3,500 years. It's just within the last 500 that we've been able to actually print one. You had to do it by hand. Or like, you know, this, now they can kind of run them off. The internet. I have five translations on my phone. I can have a text message of a verse come to me every day at a certain time with just a little word of encouragement from the Bible. There's been no other time in our history ever, 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 ever that we have this much access to the word of God. Now, having kind of said all that history and all that kind of stuff, how we approach God's word is going to be the key to everything. As Rick was saying uh, in his testimony, you know, there was a time when he was really, really studying and studying and studying, but all for all the wrong reasons. And sometimes we read the Bible and we come with this expectation that, that something miraculous is going to happen or whatever. And we kind of come with all our different perspectives and all these kind of things. How we come to the word of God is key. And I want to read you two verses that I hope will remind us how we come to the Bible. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about how we read it and how we can get into a plan. Second Timothy says this. Paul's writing a letter to Timothy. Timothy was a pastor in the church of uh, Ephesus. And he's encouraging him and going, dude, you're doing great. You're doing great. And then he says this. And how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then here's the famous scripture I told you I was going to give you. All scripture is God breathed. It's inspired. It's, it's, it's God working through his creation to come up with his very words. When we pick up the Bible, we pick up God's very words to us. That don't wear out over hundreds of years. They're still just as applicable today. As a matter of fact, it's our job as a community of believers not to make the Bible relevant, but to show how relevant it really is. And so he says, it's God's breathe, and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking. Like Rick was saying, sometimes the truth it does not, doesn't feel very good. For correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the disciple, the servant of God, may be thoroughly equipped to win the game. May be thoroughly equipped to handle whatever is coming, whatever situation is going to happen. Like the word of God is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction, for training and righteousness, that you and I, even now, 3,500 years from when the first text was penned, you go, God, what do you have to say to me? Isn't that phenomenal? Isn't that fantastic? He says, we'd be thoroughly equipped for every, every good work. Now, here's the problem with the Bible. I'm just going to give you one big problem that we have. The Bible is useless if it's not applied. As a matter of fact, here's the problem. Just like with your little kid, oftentimes it doesn't matter how many times something's told you from the Bible. I, I could tell my kid, you know, here's the reason why you got to brush your teeth. Here's the reason you got to brush your teeth. Here's the reason you got to brush your teeth. And my little, you know, if you got a five-year-old or six-year-old, will go, well, I don't know. I think brushing your teeth is stupid. You know, it's not until he applies it or she applies it that the truth of it is actually revealed. 
And this is the problem when you come to Scripture, because there's a lot of stuff God wants us to apply. And so oftentimes what we'll find is we'll go through decades of our life having not applied it. And we go, man, I got to do something else. And then we apply it. And this is what we say. I hear it every single day almost of my ministry. I wish I had known that. I wish I had done that earlier. Man, if only I had started. You heard Rick say it today in his testimony. Oh, man, if I had started reading the word like Justin did when he was that age. The other problem with the Bible is the consequences of not doing it aren't immediate. They take a long time, just like not brushing your teeth. You don't brush your teeth. You don't get a cavity right away. Your teeth don't just like pop out of your mouth and you're like, oh, you can't believe, you know, you're like, you can't. it's not like that. It's over time. And then you look back and you go, oh man, I wish I'd gotten into the habit and then I wouldn't have. Here's what the Bible says about the Bible and about God's faith in us to be able to canonize the correct word of God. It says this, for the word of God is alive. It's alive. I feel like, it's alive. You're like, I'm a mad scientist. How we approach the Bible means everything. If you approach it as a textbook and you're going to learn so that you can argue with people and you can prove something, that's what it's going to return for you. If you look at it like an old text and, hey, you know what? I'm dating this girl now and she's a Christian. She brought me to church and I can tell her, hey, I read the book of uh, Psalms or whatever it is. Like, you know, yeah, like you, you want to show her something. That's exactly how it's going to come back. It's alive. <laughs> no emails. Okay. All uh, right. Listen to this. The word of God is alive and active. This is how it survived over all these hundreds of years. There have been people who've read it and applied it. And they've watched the, the work of God manifest itself in their lives. So much so that they're like, you got to read this thing. You got to read some of these stories. You got to see what's going on. I, I did it. And here's what happened to me. It's alive, it's active, and it goes on. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. I tried, to get a, I tried to get a gurney up here with a dead body on it. Uh, well, it was, it, anyway, uh, is this going to be a mannequin? And, and talk about how we approach the Word of God. It's just so old, it's like it's dead and all this kind of stuff. And then I thought about having it pop up and scare one. But anyway, that was this... <clears throat> That was it. But, but, but what I wanted to do was take the body off the gurney and then lie on the gurney. I don't know why my staff couldn't have gotten me a gurney. Okay? You guys are gone. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> when we approach the Bible as living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow and able to t- judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's like lying down and allowing the word of God to begin to do its work in our lives and going, what's this? We got to cut this out. We got to fix this. You've got something that hasn't been addressed yet. We got to address it. We got to set it. We have to stitch it up. We got to cut it out. We got to remove it. That's what it's like when we come before the living and active word that's sharper than any two-edged sword. We essentially go under the knife, if you will. Now, here's the thing. We're going to wrap up because we got to get to our meeting. 
How do you approach the word of God? Is it something to get through? And I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm going to confess something that I confessed first service. And uh, there was two people who just had this like gaping open, like their mouths were like, oh, so don't do that, please. It really freaked me out. Um, I've never read through the entire Bible before. Yeah, there we go. I knew there'd be some bunch of you morons trying to mess me up. But I've never read it from beginning to end. Okay, now listen, you're like, oh my goodness, this is a pastor, you know, you, you know, Siri, where's Rock Harbor? You know, whatever. Anyway, and so you're, 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 you're like, you know, but, but here's the thing I want you to understand. I'm totally okay with that. In other words, I've tried many times and I've gotten frustrated. I'm like, I can't even make it past Leviticus. I've been a Christian for all that time. The Bible was not designed for you to read through it. It's not even chronological. The Bible was designed for you to apply it. It would be far better for you to pick a book and spend the rest of your life reading it every day, parts of it, and just going, God, just show me. David wrote this. He said, God, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Lord, Lord, see if there's any hurtful way in me. let, Let your word do its work. It's living and active. You can read through the whole Bible. I, I know lots of people that read through the whole Bible. I, I don't even like them, right? It's like there's no evidence in their life. My mom's the only one I like. That's, I, she's read through the Bible, I think, 14 times. She does it every, every year, you know, but okay, she's my mom. You know, what are you going to do? I, what I'm trying to say, I'm trying to let you off the hook, okay? It's not what you do. It's how you approach it. And so for me, when I have my time in the morning, I try to pick a time when no one's awake. And, and, and I, I'll open it up and, and I go before, I just, I, I pick a book and I go through a book, a chapter at a time. I have my coffee there because, you, you know, you can't wake up and just be alert, you know. And, and I'll just be like, God, speak to me. Make, make it come alive. I'm willing. Sometimes, like Rick was saying, God says some truths about me and I'm like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that came from, you know. I'm going to go to someplace nice, you know. But, 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 or, but that's what I'm saying is that as we approach it, what is your plan? How are you going to get the word of God in you every day? Every disciple I know that's winning the game, that's effective when things start going wrong, is a, is a student and an applier of the word of God. 